Good morning, everyone. How's it going? <laughs> ah, it feels so good to have a morning like this where we're taking communion and praying for beloved family members in Christ. And I have the great opportunity of preaching on Acts 2 today, which I'm convinced even if you're pretty new to church, you kind of have an idea of what Acts 2 is. It's Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes on the church uh, mightily for the first time and crazy things are happening. So I'm going to preach about the Holy Spirit. Um, you guys can flip open to Acts chapter 2 to get yourselves ready. This is really a powerful piece of scripture uh, because you do, you see the Holy Spirit moving in the church in not just one person, you, know, you see Jesus in the Gospels going around and doing miraculous things, and the disciples are like trying to copy him, but sometimes failing to achieve this, this power that Jesus has. Um, but here in Pentecost, you see what, 120 spirit-filled believers doing crazy stuff, and then next thing you know, now there's not just 120 believers, but there's thousands of them. And so anyways... Uh, I could just go on about how incredible this passage really is, but I'm going to get myself over to Acts. Um, if you don't know, the fellow who wrote the Gospel of Luke, Luke, uh, also wrote Acts. And um, I do want to mention one thing in chapter 1 before we get over to chapter 2. Uh, if you look over to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through six through 8, really, um, it's an important thing to note because uh, what Luke says in Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 8, actually what Jesus is saying, um, give us, gives us the lens through which we need to read the rest of Acts. So you'll see what I mean. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So when they, all the disciples and all the believers, when they had come together and asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says to them, No. Basically, right? In so many words. That's not what I came to do. Uh, in verse 8, he says, But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I could keep going, but I say that this is the lens through which we read Acts and perhaps like we read our lives today because Jesus says, no, this isn't just a nationalistic thing. This isn't just about Israel. You know, the disciples... Uh, we're looking at Jesus at this time. If you don't know, this is post-resurrection. They saw their Messiah be crucified and died. This friend they lived with for three years, he was murdered, uh, you know, 50 days prior, roughly. And he, th three days after that, rose from the dead. So they're talking to this resurrected Jesus, and they're like, man, God is doing something crazy. He's raising people from the dead. You're back. Uh, is this when you remove the Greco-Roman Empire from our country and restore Israel again? And Jesus is like, this is so much more than Israel, you know? And, and Israel is great, uh, but he says this is, you're going to go out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is a whole worldwide phenomenon that's about to happen, not just the Israel thing like it's been in the past. We see a lot of great works of God throughout the Old Testament, and for the most part, it's pretty, you know, secluded to what's going on in Israel. Um, of course, we do have the promise of God to Abraham that through his descendants, 
the whole world will be blessed. So this isn't a plan B, don't hear me wrong here, but, but he's correcting the disciples because they think, oh, great, yeah, we're going to get power back to our country. It's so much more than that, right? So what happens next? In Acts chapter 2, and in fact, I won't really be butting in too much. Acts chapter 2 is Peter's sermon to a crowd of people, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, but I don't really need to add a whole lot because this is already a sermon, and I don't want to inject my own thoughts and my own thinking into this too much um, to dilute it. However, I will butt in occasionally to make it clearer to us and how this fits to us, but I think it'll do a good enough job on its own. So in Acts chapter 2, it begins when saying, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They, if you had read the past chapter, it's like about 120 believers. There's really only 120 believers on planet Earth right now. That's the size of Christianity, uh, much different than it is today where we have roughly 2 billion of us. Praise God, right? Um, but this is where that happened. The, the church started expanding and exploding and uh, it, it all started with the day of Pentecost. So what is Pentecost? Pentecost means 50. It's 50 days after the Passover. So Jesus was crucified right around then, right around the Passover. And he, of course, right, he died, he resurrected. And he spent about 50 days with his believers, teaching them and appearing here and there and, and telling them. Uh, actually, it says in Luke uh, 26, Jesus opened the scriptures to them and taught them how the entire Old Testament is about me, Jesus says. Like, what you've been studying your whole life as Jewish men and women, it's all about me. So as us believers today, if we go back and read the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. It's about his death and resurrection. Anyhow, so this is happening during that time, the time of Pentecost. So there are people from around the world coming to celebrate this holiday in Jerusalem, it says in verse 2, um, when they were all together in one place, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were staying. This is some supernatural event. What's going on? Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, something you might be very familiar with, that story, the, the tongues of fire just all of a sudden appear on maybe 120 people, and, and they start speaking in different tongues. Like, this is a, such a wild event that Christians love to talk about it all the time. Um, and we do love to talk about this miraculous event, and, I, and we will talk about it, but that's about all Luke has to say about the event itself. Those two or three verses, there's a rushing wind, tongues of fire came down, and they start speaking. The rest of what Luke is doing in Acts chapter 2 and the rest of his book here is explaining the fallout of that event, you know? So this miraculous thing happened, and we all want to be there, right? Like, we all wish we could have been in that place where there was a mighty rushing wind and flame, flaming tongues rested on our heads, and now we have the spiritual gift of tongues. That sounds really cool. I would have loved to have been there. But Luke isn't so much concerned of explaining what happened. What is this miraculous event? He's more so interested in explaining, like I said, the fallout. So there are people around reacting to this, and that's what we're interested here. So let's dig into that a little bit with verse 5 and on. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That phrase sounds a bit odd because Jews are from Israel, and it says 
Jews from every nation under heaven. Well, you know, at this time in history, there is a, you know, Jews lived everywhere. The uh, diaspora, they had scattered. And as is today, there are Jews all over the world. But during Passover, they all kind of come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this high holiday. And they're kind of sticking around until at least Pentecost because it's the holiday season for them. Um, So you do have Jews from all over the world hanging out in Jerusalem, so this is the perfect time for God to do something like this. And so what happens in verse 6, and at this sound, the multitude of Jewish people came together, and they were bewildered or frightened because each one was hearing them speak in his own dialect. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And I want to note, too, we know that Galileans kind of have a unique way of talking. Peter, when he's denying Jesus, he says, I don't know that man. And they say, well, you're from Galilee. Your accent gives you away. Like, we know that. Stop, you know, stop lying to us. So a Galilean accent is something that other Jews can identify. And yet, they hear these people speaking in all different dialects. So I'll, I'll keep reading. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these people of Galilee... And how is it that we hear each one of him in our own dialect? Parthians, Medes, and Almites, and residents of Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontius, and Asia, and Phygra, and all these hard-to-pronounce names, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. But they are, as it says, bewildered. And wouldn't you be if you were, you know, went back to your home country? Like, I'm Scottish. If I went back to Scotland, well, I guess they speak English in Scotland. That doesn't quite work. But you go back to whatever your home country is, or maybe this is your home country, and um, you all of a sudden hear people speaking like, like you do back home. And, I mean, I, I shouldn't have to explain how bizarre this is and how profound this is. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit this is occurring. And that becomes pretty evident to them rather quickly. Um, It says, they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others stood mocking. They are filled with new wine, right? And that's that's a line we're all familiar with. So Uh, Without further ado, Peter has this response to the response, and he begins preaching a sermon to the, I mean, he has their attention now. Him and all of his friends are speaking all kinds of languages. So they're they're enamored with what's going on. They want to know what's going on, and they're they're asking that question. Um, So Peter takes his opportunity to preach an an amazing sermon to these people. Um, So it says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Who gets drunk that early? (laughs) But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see vision, your old men shall dream dreams. Peter is referring to the prophet Joel here in a passage where he says, in the last days. What does that mean? That means Peter interpreting this passage saying, these are the last days. He's saying, what's happening here? Well, the Spirit's come. Why? Joel says the Spirit's going to come in the last days. You know, one plus one equals two. Peter is claiming 
These are the last days. This is when God is going to start to move in new ways that we have never seen before. Um, Sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see uh, dream dreams. In verse 18, even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So it's not just men getting the spirit. It's everybody getting the spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Really dramatic stuff, right? Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That transitions us into the next section here. This is more than just an outpouring of the Spirit to do cool tricks, I hope you can see that. To be able to speak another language is great, but, I mean, you could go buy Rosetta Stone, right? You know, I mean, what, what's happening here? What's really going on? It talks about the, the sun turning black and things that we've never seen before. So God's doing a great thing, but, but for what is my question? Naturally, when I read a text like this, great, I believe I've seen miracles, like me, Jacob, I, I think I've seen some crazy God stuff in my life, and I feel blessed to have seen those things. But what's it for? It's so that people can be saved. And that's what Joel says. That's what Peter is reiterating. And now myself, I suppose. It's all about the salvation of unbelievers and the glory of God. And we can't lose sight of that. In this time in our church where we are going on mission and doing great things and painting people's porches, as wonderful as it is, and Dave says this himself, like, It's got to come down to what is the eternal impact that we're having. I want us all to be motivated to do awesome stuff. But again, I mean, of course, some of us can't get on our hands and knees and paint because that's way too painful and you might never stand back up again, right? I mean, that's a a practical issue that we face as a church. Like, What does missions look like for everybody, young and old and everywhere in between and different capabilities and skills? Um, I'm never going to be an artist, so I'm not painting murals like Michelle is, but thank God we have her and hope to do things like, like, you know, we all have different giftings. But what's the point? What can I do? We can all preach the gospel, maybe in foreign tongues, and get people saved. That's what it's all about. So again, let let me let Peter preach some more in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So the the crowd that Peter's talking to, perhaps some of them actually met Jesus and saw some of the great wonders he has done. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. That's powerful for me, and I could almost preach a whole sermon on verse 23, because he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God became a man and knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to be tortured in probably one of the most horrific torture devices. I have one up behind me. That's a torture device, right? It's like having an electric chair up at the front of your church or what have you. That's what that is, a Roman cross. God became a man and knew he was going to die according to the foreknowledge, so why did he do this? And I want, as a Christian preacher, I want to make it very clear that this is God's plan A. You know, this is not a new thing that God did when the whole Israel thing didn't work out, like I said before. It kind of didn't work out. They they screwed up, and they needed a 
a king like Jesus because all the Davidic kings weren't cutting it. And you can go read the Old Testament for that. There's no doubt about it. But, but Jesus comes and does all these miraculous things, and he could have stopped there. Like, here, I healed your sick, and, and this, that, and the other thing, and now you can do it too. See you later. And the world would be a better place for it. But he had to die for our sins, right? He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the substitute. That's supposed to be our cross. We're supposed to see ourselves up there, you know, and I heard a pastor say one time something, and I, I might butcher it a little bit, but he said that only those who can take responsibility in the guilt of the cross can take the share in its grace, you know? So once you've realized that Jesus was crucified for you, that sounds good, but think about that. He died because you're sinful. That's kind of troubling, and ought to be. That leads us to repentance and actually changing our lives, and I hope we do. We don't talk enough about sanctification and becoming pure and becoming holy sometimes. We need to see less sin in our lives um, as a result of this thing that Jesus did. He took our sins, and he's our sacrifice. So anyhow, this is in verse 23, God's foreknowledge and plan. Everything that just happened in those gospels that, that led up to Acts, God planned it all. And in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. So now, this is the second passage of scripture that Peter wants to quote. And I, I do want to take note of that, because if you're reading the New Testament, you're also at the same time reading the Old Testament, because there's so many quotes from the Old Testament. And I want to be an encouragement to maybe some of you younger believers, younger in your faith, although I don't know that anybody in here is younger than me uh, by age, but if you're newer in your faith and you're confused as to what to do with that scary three-fourths of the Bible, that Old Testament, um, it's in your New Testament too, so you can't escape it. Don't try to escape it. There's God is there. God's doing something there. It's the same God. He hasn't changed. Anyhow, Peter quotes David saying, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter says, brothers, brothers and sisters, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Why does he say that? Because look at verse 27 here in Acts. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Jews want to interpret that as if it's David, that he's ta like David's talking about himself because it is in the first person, but, but David's talking about Jesus here. Because Peter says, like, look, I'm telling you for sure, David died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. So he has seen corruption. His flesh has rotted. It's not David's body we're talking about. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has, has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
I mean it when I say the entire Old Testament has a death and resurrection theme, and it's all about Jesus, you know? If you look, there's, there's like ups and downs and life and death, and like that's what the New Testament is, or the Old Testament is about, and you see these shadows and types of Jesus, people like David and Joseph who represent Jesus in the way that God used them. Well, David here just straight up refers to the resurrection of Jesus by saying his flesh will not see corruption. He was only in the grave for three days. Um, anyhow, where, where were we? Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and that we were all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Okay, so finally we get back to this, this thing that we like to talk about when we read Acts 2 this event of the Holy Spirit being poured out, as wonderful as it is, um, it's only after Jesus died and buried and resurrected, and now that Jesus left, if you read Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes back up into heaven and says, like, don't worry, I'm sending a helper. And it didn't happen immediately, but they waited and prayed and were faithful until the Holy Spirit came. <sighs> Good stuff. <laughs> For David did not ascend into, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I'm, I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, like deeply offended, Right? And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I think like Danny was saying earlier, that's the response that you hope beyond hope when you're preaching the gospel to somebody. You want them to say, oh, I'm a sinner and God is offended at my sin and I need a savior. What do I do? Like that's what you want when we're out here preaching the gospel. You, you want somebody to say, you hope somebody says, well, how do I, what do I do to get saved? Um, and if you can answer that, then you, you, you well, actually, you're going to need to answer it just like he did. Verse 37, um, they were cut to the heart. Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> repent and be baptized like you know, next week when we do a baptism for some of our, our new believers, that's the answer to the question, oh, how, what do I do to get saved? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we do it today. Why do we do it? For the forgiveness of your sins, according to Acts chapter 2. For the promise, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord uh, our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness. Don't you like that? It says, and with many other words. So it kind of, Luke is sort of truncating Peter's sermon. He probably talked for a long time. So with many other words, he said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added uh, that day to the, to the number 3,000 souls. Uh, so 3,000 souls get saved because of this miraculous event. Um, I hope you can see why, why. I don't want to drone on about that particular outpouring of the Spirit where they were speaking in tongues um, to all these foreigners, and that might happen today. That would be 
cool, um, sure, but there's all sorts of things that God wants to do with us today in our unique situations. You know, we're not living in a singular country that represents a religion, and people are coming from afar to celebrate a holiday. Like We're not there, so God might not do just that, but he might. But hopefully the result is the same, where we get to save souls, right? And something that I think is almost too easy to point out, that, that 3,000 were added to their number that day. So you go from 120 to 3,000. When have you yourselves ever seen such a mass saving of souls? When have you ever heard somebody preach such a good sermon that actually 3,000 people decided to give their life to Christ that day? If only every sermon was that powerful, and if only the church today was that powerful, I think when I look around at the state of the church today, it does look like it's dying. You know, and for hundreds of years now, people have been saying, God is dead. We don't need God anymore because we have science and we have uh, politics like, that, that govern us. We don't need to be governed by the laws of the Old Testament anymore, but, but I don't want to look at the world that way. I don't think God is dead. I don't think God can die. God's here, and he's here to stay, and he's doing things just like this. Um, but check this out. So the response is they, they, get, they repent and get baptized and get filled with the Holy Spirit, which is awesome. Uh, Dave is actually going to soon talk about more about the Holy Spirit and his gifts, so I won't talk too much about that. I'll let him do it. But in verse 42, he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The apostles' teaching, that's kind of like, you know, coming to church on Sunday and hearing a sermon. So, check. You know, we do that. We listen to teaching, and, I, and that is an important thing for the church to do, to listen to the apostles' teaching. Um, and fellowship, I think we're good at that one as well. We're fellowshipping right now. We sing songs together. We lay hands on each other and pray. Um, so, we're good at that. We're good at fellowship. We're good at prayers. And the breaking of bread. We've been celebrating communion every morning, or every Sunday, rather, right? But the breaking of bread, I think, in the New Testament is supposed to be more than just communion. The breaking, in fact, communion itself represents a giving of food and drink to those who are hungry and thirsty. So as we go on, on our missional thing that we're doing, remember that Communion isn't just for us believers to come and take and have for ourselves, but we need to give generously. Um, if I need to back that up, that idea, it says um, later on how they did just that. Let me read it. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all uh, as any had need. So that's missions, distributing what, what surplus God has given us to bless those around us who may be uh, less blessed, I suppose. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, so this is a reflection of, like, that's what the new, or that's what the, the church looked like when things were just getting started. The new church, I suppose. Sounds weird to say that, but 
when the church got started, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, doing miracles, breaking bread, loving on everybody. And I just don't know that we always see that today. Maybe we, we focus on one part at a time, but we need to chase that type of church life where we're breaking bread together, sharing with all, and learning and growing, and God adding to our numbers day by day, I think that that ought to be our goal as well. It's not about the numbers in this church in particular, but the numbers saved to heaven. So I guess as much as we talk about you are missionaries, you know, we say welcome missionaries because you're not just people going to church. You are missionaries if you are Christians. I hope that you succeed in saving people to the kingdom of God. And before I go on too much more, I'm going to say a prayer uh, in light of all this, and uh, we'll sing one last song and uh, go out with joy in our hearts. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for allowing me to preach such, an, such a powerful sermon uh, that, that Peter preached, this, this idea that the Holy Spirit will come and rest on us and fill us. God, I hope that can be us today, right now. I ask that the Holy Spirit come, just like we sang in the song earlier, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And it's for the glory of God that we seek to receive you, Holy Spirit, because we can't do it on our own. You are helper. But God, please come and help us. Help us do this missionary stuff that we stumble to even know what to do. Help us to see the needs of others and meet them through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the surplus of our goods and the life that we have, may we be poured out as a living sacrifice for those uh, around us. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.